It's Muppeturgy, and just for the halibut, we're back to talk about the Pearl Bailey episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! They don't know we took a break. Well, it's still, we're back from a week of when they got their last episode. Yeah, he always says, we're so glad you're here with us or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, we're glad they're back. They're glad we're back. We hope. (laughs) Probably, unless they're hate listening. Who would do such a thing? I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, and Christy Bauer. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 5 of The Muppet Show, starring Pearl Bailey. I'm so excited. Yay! It was produced the week of March 4th, 1978, and it aired in New York on November 13th, 1978. It was the ninth episode to air in New York the week before the Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge episode. Uh, there's nothing hugely notable in the news this week, but I was struck by multiple ads in the New York Times for TV networks and local stations touting their election coverage from a week earlier. Tune in tonight to find out who won a week ago kind of thing. I mean, no, it was like we we were so great. We're the best news. You should watch this news because of how great we did last week, basically. <laughs> Apparently, ABC's got the results first and uh, locally Channel 4 had the most viewers. It just seemed like a very 1970s thing, and it was weird. On the Cashbox pop charts, Donna Summer's cover of MacArthur Park is the number one song. Don't leave First Mate Piggy out in the rain. That'll make sense in a bit. And the Grease movie soundtrack is the number one album. And on Our Friend Television, our primetime lineup is pretty basic tonight, but there's a lot of fear-based programming. Uh, The news is on one tonight. ABC7 kicks off a series, Marijuana, America's Pot of Gold. Get it? Uh, No, explain it. (laughs) I will not. Here's the copy from the ad. At lunchtime, a lot of people don't feel right until they hit their favorite joint. Get it? Any lunch hour, head for the nearest park. (laughs) MacArthur Park. (laughs) (laughs) Chances are, you'll see some people who don't keep off the grass. Get it? In fact, for some businessmen, marijuana has replaced the martini. I don't know. Why not both? Yeah. It was the 70s. And over on CBS 2, we used to take the food we eat for granted. But with all the talk of additives, pesticides, and laboratory rats dying of cancer, nobody knows what to think. Uh, This one's really all about the visual, which we will, of course, have on the show page. It's like a waiter, but the waiter is death. It's scary. The NBC movie counterprogramming football uh, is Betrayal, not the Harold Pinter play. The true story of a vulnerable woman who turns to a psychiatrist for help. Instead, he lures her into a sexual relationship. Jesus and Christ. it starred Leslie Ann Warren and Rip Torn. No, thanks. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, sometimes I complain about these generic titles because they're hard to, to search for and watch. But no, not interested. I mean, change psychiatrist to obstetrician, and it's waitress. Right. Then it's a hit musical. Just saying. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Pearl Bailey, often known as Pearlie May, was an actress, singer, comedian, best remembered today for leading the all-black company of Hello, Dolly! on Broadway and providing the voice of Big Mama the Owl in Disney's The Fox and the Hound. Born in 1918 in Newport News, Virginia, she moved to Philadelphia as a teenager, and it was there that she made her stage debut at age 15, winning $5 in an amateur talent contest. She was offered a two-week contract, but the theater closed during her gig, and she never got paid. Rude. 
Didn't deter her, though, and she worked her way up, winning Amateur Night at the Apollo and eventually touring with the USO during World War II. Her first really big break came in 1944 when she secured a solo spot at the famed New York City nightclub, The Village Vanguard. This enabled her to book gigs with the likes of Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington, and in 1946, she made a knockout Broadway debut in St. Louis Woman. She won a Donaldson Award as Best Newcomer for that performance, which was the major New York Theater Award before the Tony Awards existed. Her career was off and away, making records, performing in additional Broadway shows, and appearing in films. After a rocky romantic life in her 20s and 30s, leaving behind an indeterminate number of failed marriages, she married jazz drummer Louis Belson in 1952, and they stayed together through his death nearly 40 years later. They had two children, which may be why her resume is mostly focused on her recording career in the early 60s. But in 1967, she made her biggest splash yet when producer David Merrick revitalized the original Broadway production of Hello, Dolly! by replacing the entire cast with black actors, led by Pearl Bailey and Cab Calloway. It was the first time Broadway had seen this happen, and it breathed new life into the show, which would go on to become the longest-running show in Broadway history for a time, and eventually feature other Muppet Show guest stars in the lead during its lengthy run, including Phyllis Diller and Ethel Merman. Pearl received a special Tony Award for her performance, and she would become closely associated with the role, recording a cast album, taking the show on the road, returning to Broadway in a 1975 revival, and even recording a television special with original Dolly and future Muppet Show guest star Carol Channing. They actually did two specials together, but one was just the two of them. While appearing in Hello, Dolly, Pearl wrote the first of several books in autobiography called The Raw Pearl. She was very involved in Republican politics as well. In 1970, President Nixon appointed her Ambassador of Love, which I assume was like a calm down about civil rights sort of yeah. uh, position. I don't know. Republicans, man. Like, depends on your definition of love, I guess. Just sounds like a song from Hair. In 1975, she was appointed Special Ambassador to the United Nations by President Gerald Ford, a position she held under three presidents. She sang as part of the second Reagan inauguration festivities, and Ronald Reagan awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1988. Also in the 80s, when she was in her 60s, she pursued a college degree in theology from Georgetown, graduating in 1985 at the age of 67. She died in 1990 at the age of 72. As the Broadway nerd that I am, of course, Pearl Bailey looms large in my pop culture viewfinder, but I'm wondering for the rest of you what your associations are with her other than as the guest star of one of the best episodes of The Muppet Show. I'm a huge fan of the cast album that her cast of hello dolly did i think it's worth seeking out if you are a fan of the show or are a broadway history nerd in general because it's not necessarily a carbon copy of the original album like there are keys that are different like it just has there's a quality to it that gets an overture that the show didn't have before yeah yeah it's amazing but yeah that's that's my primary association is the the hello dolly of it all but she was one of a kind. Anything else? No one's going to talk about like Duncan Hines commercials or uh, Fox and the Hound or. Oh, that was her, wasn't it? The Duncan Hines commercial. I, I, yeah. I'm only just now connecting that. Yeah. Now I'm suddenly having a memory, but really I only associate her with this episode. That's fine. That's allowed. I will seek out that cast album though. One of my first live theatrical experiences in COVID times post, no, still during, uh, was um, uh, Goodspeed Musicals comes up a lot on this podcast for some reason in Connecticut. They they did a 
sort of outdoor tent series. Uh, and they did a one woman show called Ambassador of Love about Pearl Bailey's life, which did not really mention her politics at all. <laughs> but um, it's the sort of thing that I imagine is is going to get done a lot. And it was quite good. And just, you know, if you just if you want to hear some good songs sung presumably well by whoever's performing it where you are and you're interested in Pearl Bailey, um, I would say seek it out. It was a it was a, a nice way to to be back at a live performance. And other than that, you know, and I was like, oh, Pearl Bailey from the Muppet Show was kind of my um, <laughs> it's not why I went, but I was was like, yeah, sure, I'll learn some things. And I uh, and I did. Well, I think we've all tipped our hands, but David <laughs> What'd you think? As I said, one of the best episodes of the Muppet show. Uh, it just, it's a lot of fun. It holds up to repeat viewing. It's got a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of something for everyone. Michal. Yep. Ditto. A lot of these episodes, once we've watched them a few times, I will think to myself, yeah, good thing. I won't have to watch that again for a few times. Or like, I think I've had my fill of that for a while, but yeah, this one, I know I will come back to, this is an easy episode to show people if they're not sure whether the Muppet show is for them, because it is such a shining example of what the Muppet show can be. There is so much to love in this episode. It features my favorite one-off Muppet of all time. I'm pretty confident that I can say that there are fantastic musical numbers and there is the astonishingly Muppety Pearl Bailey. She's so much fun to watch. She's got this mischievous look on her face every time she sings, like she's, thinking of some kind of private joke and then looking back at us and remembering that we're here and she's also performing for us, but also for herself. She's like on her own planet and it's a Muppety planet and she fits in very nicely. Christy. You know, at least every season there's a guest where I think I would kill for an entire season with this guest. And uh, Pearl Bailey is the season three guest for that. Sandy Duncan and JP Morgan were the, the mm. season one and two for me. Well done. But yeah, there's a lot of what's left, particularly in seasons four and five, that I haven't seen. But it'll be shocking to me if anything surpasses this for me. It's it's top five for sure. Maybe even higher. Yeah, I mean, same to all of that. I, I have alluded to this before, I think, on the podcast Extra Hot Great, on which I am sometimes a guest. They have a feature called The Canon where guests and listeners and and sometimes the main hosts will submit an episode of television to the canon, to their their sort of uh, hall of fame. Not to be shot out of a canon. Uh, no, not to the other kind of canon. They, many years ago, um, they had they had just had a conversation uh, about whether it was even possible for sketch or variety shows to ever be entered into the canon because they, they're so um, uneven. And, and I immediately thought, challenge accepted. Uh, next time I'm on, I'm going to bring them up a show. And and this was the episode that I brought. My argument at the time was a bit, it was a bit of a cheat because I, I basically argued it's it's not really a, a sketch show. It's it's really a sitcom that occasionally has some sketches. And we've definitely talked about this. I've, I've sort of changed my opinion on that as we've been doing this podcast and, and whether that really makes a good Muppet show episode or not. But but in this in this episode, it, I think it absolutely does. I mean, the you know, it's it's certainly, I think, the best backstage plot we've seen, the most cohesive backstage plot we've seen so far with the best payoff. It's just a perfect episode, and and I never get tired of it. And it, it did it did get into the canon quite successfully, and, and it's in my personal canon. It's 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 my favorite. We'll see. We've talked about my bad memory also, so, so we'll yeah, see if that changes. Yeah, now we'll tear it apart. We'll see. Uh, I don't think we're going <laughs> to. 
I don't I don't even really have a nit to pick on this one. It is it is definitely my favorite at this moment. Season four and five may may tell other stories, but but yeah, I love it so much. Pearl Billy, fifteen seconds to curtain, Miss Billy. I'll be there, honey, as soon as somebody calls off these oysters. Clam up. Usually you would find pearls inside of oysters, and today Pearl finds some oysters inside her dressing room. I have no further insight. They're just oysters there. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, do you think that they intended that to be the joke? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was like watching it. I was like, I don't get it. Why? Why clams? Why oysters? I mean, why not? <laughs> I guess they are all yelling pearl. That ma- it makes sense that if oysters would yell anything, they would yell pearl. <laughs> like if rabbits were to say anything, it would just be rabbit, rabbit over and over again. And oysters, instead of saying the oyster, Pokemon theory of yeah. speech. But oysters would say pearl. That makes sense to me. They just want her attention. They're very shellfish. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's hear our. <laughs> Inter theme song clip. Everybody on stage. Everybody is on stage. <laughs> Scooter's out of a job. Well, he's not very good at it, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Sooner or later, <laughs> that chicken was going to come home to roost. Gonzo's not even going to try blowing his trumpet, but then it blares without his help. I'm not even going to try it. I should have given a should have given a headphone warning on that one. Sorry, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, the best Gonzo bit in this rotating slot that we've seen yet. I just we don't usually clip those, but his delivery of not even going to try it is so funny to me. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to watch it to see him get startled. But yeah, it's a nice little Gonzo bit. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. All right, here's what's going on this week backstage. Kermit has got big plans to put on the jousting scene from Camelot, but uh, fate keeps standing in his way. For one thing, the band is not having it. Wow, Kermit, like I really don't believe this weird trip you're putting us on. Oh, what's that, Janice? The band and I just flashed on the closing number. The band just flashed? (laughs) I mean, you know, Kermit, sometimes I just don't know what space you're coming from. Well, well, it's just sort of a regular backstage space. (laughs) Really, Kermit, you don't expect us to do the jousting number from Camelot. Uh, um, Well, uh, in a word... Yes. (laughs) Man, Janice hates Camelot. (laughs) I mean, so do I. (laughs) Also, if you're going to pick any number from Camelot to do on a variety show, like, why the fucking joust? Like, ugh, she's right. (laughs) I I worked on a production of Camelot when I was in, in a summer when I was in college that was, like, very heavily fucked with. Don't tell the licensor, which is part of the joke of this episode. And I believed for many years that part of the joke of this episode was that there was no jousting scene in Camelot (laughs) because we (laughs) cut it with like no ill effect whatsoever. I don't think we we cut the song or, you know, whatever. But anyway, yes, to your point, why? Why would you do it on a variety show? (laughs) It's a terrible idea. You would think from the Zero Mostel episode that they would be like, nah, Camelot doesn't really play with Muppets part of the history of Camelot. And I don't know if I should save this for later is that 
the show, uh, first of all, the show had a lot of trouble out of town. It was very long. They were constantly cutting things to try to like get it into shape. Uh, and in fact, there are a couple of numbers that are like frequently in or out of the show based on like which version of the script you get. Although I don't think the joust is one of them. I think joust is always there anyway. Uh, but part of what turned the show's fortunes around on Broadway is that Ed Sullivan had Julie Andrews and Richard Harris, the stars of the show on to do an extended sequence from the show on the Ed Sullivan show and, and putting it on TV in that way on a variety show was what got America interested in buying tickets and it turned it into a hit. So Camelot does fit with this kind of show. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, Muppet Fire on Goodness would be spectacular. I mean, I also just don't particularly care for Camelot, but that's also that. neither here nor there. We're going to have a Broadway revival next season, so... Uh, <sighs> Get ready for a jousting scene that involves walking and talking, which should be really impressive. <laughs> because Aaron Sorkin <laughs> is rewriting it for this production. Maybe they'll put a cow in it. It works for the Muppets. Anyway, is this the most that Janice has ever spoken? Because I love it. Uh, outside of Veterinarian's Hospital, probably. Yeah. I just feel like Janice has finally become Janice. Yeah, here she has her. opinions, and I'm, I'm here for them. So things aren't going Kermit's way, even though he very much wants to put on this number. The knight's costumes keep falling on people and getting tangled up with each other. Kermit maybe fractures a flipper because uh, armor fell on his foot. Floyd does not even want to be wearing his armor in the first place, even though he, they managed to get him into the costume. Uh, yeah, well, Floyd, I wanted you to play the knight because you fit the part. You see, yeah. uh, you're, you're the only one of us with real gallantry. The only one of us with real honor. The only one of us who'd fit in that iron suit. I mean, Scooter's an asshole. <laughs> As always. <laughs> but, like, I love this moment because it actually, like, it, it's a thing that actually literally happens. <laughs> Where, like, costumes are rented, costumes are from stock. People actually get cast, at least in part, because of their measurements. But I also really want to talk about this armor and how amazing it is. It reminds me so much of the Jabberwocky, uh, which is coming in a later season on yes. an episode not available on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, we're going to deal with that anyway. But then when I went to actually look at pictures of it, it doesn't look so similar. It's just something about the curves and the angles and the way it's put together, it kind of has the same vibe, even though it doesn't actually look like it. And it's and made out of like, like kitchen objects and, and like there's like a, an iron on it and, and the iron is like, has its cord and its plug. And like, Oh, that, ex- that explains why later <laughs> for the yes. house, there are flags. One of them has a chicken and one of them has an iron. I get it now. Well, cause he's the iron knight that they say. Right. Yeah. And but yeah, and there's like colanders and and things, and I don't know. It's just it's so weird, and uh, and it and costs Kermit it. thirteen bucks apparently. Yeah, <laughs> serious business. That's half the budget for an episode. So the most daunting obstacle standing in Kermit's way turns out to be a financial one. Boy, oh boy, Chief, are we in trouble? Well, what now? Well, you know how you're planning to do the jousting scene from Camelot? Of course, that's the show's big finale. Uh, well, well, the people that publish the, the music from Camelot just called. Mm-hmm. They, they, they won't let you do it. What? Uh, I was willing to give them credit. I would have given them a big build-up. I would have given anything to do the jousting scene. They want money. <laughs> I cancel the jousting scene. Kermit does this great double-take when he says they want money. 
and the way he says it's the show's big finale, it's there. There's a lot of uh, great acting from Kermit this episode. When Janice says the band flashed, Kermit does this great gulp. There, there's so much that Jim Henson gets out of that puppet. It'll never cease to amaze me. So in terms of the actual backstage goings on, uh, we kind of have to infer what happens next. I get the feeling a scene might have been cut because Kermit's just been telling us he would do anything to do the jousting scene. And then just before they all go on for the finale, Kermit can't tries, Kermit tries to cancel the number, not because they can't afford it, but because he claims it's dumb and it won't work. And then he's overruled by everybody else. They all force their way on stage. Since everybody else has swords, Kermit has to let them go on. Uh, we don't learn why Kermit suddenly thinks it won't work. We can sort of piece it together when we hear what the finale actually is. Yeah, I, I, I thought it, that he was like, oh, it won't work without the music. And then, like, were they supposed to be improving? Your your way makes more sense. <laughs> Such as that it they is. cut a scene? Well, that... that that they came up with the plan and then he was like, wait, it's a bad plan. And then they cut a scene. Yes. Either, either way that they cut a scene. <laughs> I'm assuming that scooter with the exact same delivery as saying we could paint their car so they won't be recognized <laughs> said, we'll use other numbers that aren't from Camelot and did a little scooter fist. Right. That's probably what happened. And in the previous scene, Gonzo's the only one who wants to do it. And so like, it's weird that Floyd and Janice are like, Oh yeah, no, sure. This, this way is much better. <laughs> Now, now I'm down. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I well, hate to complain about anything here, but <laughs> you're right. It does feel like something is missing. It's a little bit confusing. There's still a fantastic payoff. There's also a little conversation between Floyd and Gonzo right before they go on, with Floyd saying you think it'll work, and Gonzo saying no. Isn't this great? So <laughs> maybe Floyd and Janice are into this potential failure as well. Could be. Anyway. A Broadway medley ensues, manages to shoehorn in or perhaps tinhorn in just about everything except Camelot. And as Pearl Bailey points out in the middle of the medley. You know, Ralph, this don't make any sense at all. <laughs> well, I know, Pearl, but we're stuck with it. It's so cute. I, I mean, we'll get into this more when we talk about the songs. But like, part of the reason why I love this, I love this episode as a kid. Like, this is an episode that I remember really clearly loving as a child. And then as an adult, to be like, oh, this entire thing hinges on music rights. <laughs> and then their solution is to do six songs <laughs> from six <laughs> other shows. Including one by the same writers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they don't mind about this one. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like, like that, that's the joke, like, like in, that in real life, like the actual like Muppet company like had to pay <laughs> for the rights to six songs. Like I just like the meta joke of it. That is like, you know, for very few people who are actually thinking about these things, which to be clear, I was doing before we had a podcast about this, like it's just very good and very funny. And I just, I, it, you know, there are so many levels on which I love this episode. <laughs> just makes me so happy. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense and it's not trying to make sense. They're just having a great time. Do you think that Scooter sought out, the rights to perform the song for free and was denied or that somehow the rights holders found out that they were going to do the song and contacted the Muppets and said, you can't do that. Somebody's Great keeping tabs question. on the Muppet right. show and right. saying, How you have 1495 handed over. Yeah. It's not like now well, when, you know, all they have to do is have like a Google alert for things and be like, Oh, 
those people haven't paid us. Well, like, and it does raise the question of like, is, is the Muppet show actually on TV? Right. We've talked about this before because like, truthfully, if it's just a one-off, like they're never going to know, right? No one's, no one's filming it on their phone and putting it on YouTube. If it's just at the theater. And there's no way that they're actually seeking rights to songs for free and getting them for all these other songs. Right. Uh, on the, on the fly with five minutes before the number, um, which also, how did they rehearse? Uh, never mind. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, like there's like, I mean, there are, there are such things as cabaret licenses, but like nobody cares. <laughs> like they would have just done it. They would have just like gotten the music from the library and done it. My new head canon is that Alan J. Liner happened to be walking past their theater, heard them rehearsing and got mad. <laughs> Said, do the Ascot Gavat instead. <laughs> How dare you, Sully Camelot! You fools! <laughs> and he throws a drink in somebody's face. Because in my head, Alan J. Lerner is one of the real housewives of wherever the fuck the Muppet Theater is. I mean, I he was notoriously always drunk or high, so yeah. it's possible. <laughs> I mean, he'd fit right in with Floyd and Janice. In my head, Kenan, the reason we'll never see DVDs of seasons four and five of The Muppet Show is because Scooter has been sitting somewhere at Disney taking phone calls and saying, hey, the producers of this show or the people who own the rights to that song told us we can't do it. And that was happening for 20 years. It's less funny. Getting wine thrown in your face. Like deeply plausible. Yeah. And then somebody throws a drink in Scooter's face. Oh, man. Would that puppet recover? Probably not. So aside from that one snarky moment with Rolf in the middle of the medley, Pearl Bailey is fortunately all in. We will rave about the medley later. Um, But Pearl Bailey is so willing to pitch in that as the show closes, she volunteers to help disentangle Gonzo and Floyd's armor that is tangled up altogether. You know something, Kermit? I can get those guys out of that suit of armor. I'm an expert at it. Oh, really? Did you used to be a costumer? No, I was a welder. (laughs) And then she just goes at their suits of armor with, uh, what is that tool? Little tiny flamethrower? Blowtorch. Blowtorch. That's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've had this conversation before. We have. We We absolutely have. (laughs) I'll just never learn that word. Sorry, everybody. There was a period of time in my 20s where I lived with two of my friends down the street from like a shipyard and they would work at night and there was a lot of welding that happened. And uh, oftentimes we would drive by my friend Monica and would roll the car window down and like, not cat call exactly, but she would would yell like, ooh, you weld you some barge. And I always wondered if they heard her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welders, man. Welders, man. They've got those <laughs> teeny tiny flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> they could be making creme brulee. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what flamethrowers are for, though. Yeah, <laughs> I have one of those. Creme brulee. <laughs> I'm sure that's how the Swedish chef does it. Speaking of food that bites back. All right, you guys. No, it doesn't bite back. It doesn't have any teeth. Yeah, we are nearing the halfway point of The Muppet Show. And finally, it's time to introduce everyone out there to 
quite possibly my just very favorite Muppet ever, is the avocado. You guys, it's the avocado. I've been waiting <laughs> to just talk about the avocado. How'd you like that? I don't know. I'll ask the avocado. <laughs> well, what'd you think? Ooh, loved it, loved it, loved it. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it's not. He's been a Pearl Bailey fan for years. <laughs> I love that avocado so much. I just love the phrase, I don't know, I'll ask the avocado. That sounds like a euphemism for something. (laughs) Yeah. Use that phrase in an email today. I don't know, I'll ask the avocado. It's just so random because like that's that's the whole introduction to the avocado. Yep. And there he is. He, He pops up in the booth. Yeah, and he loves it. Loves it, loves it, loves it. I know. It's, I mean... The, the unabashed enthusiasm and this just total non sequitur of I'll ask the avocado. There's so much to love. And it's adorable. It's this tiny little so avocado cute. with a tiny little mouth. And he loves Does it, loves it, teeth. loves it. With to- no teeth. And sunglasses. These, yeah, these little green sunglasses. Oh, I love the avocado so much. He reminds me a little bit of the 7-Up spot with the sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Different shape, but, you know. But better because he's an avocado. Oh, well, Sure. There's like an appealing androgyny to it. I mean, they 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 do use male pronouns for it, but like it's also sort of the Janice voice. Yeah, or it's like I mean, it's Dave Goals, right? So yeah, it's like know. a little I think so. Bunsen honeydew, but fabbed up a little bit. He loves it, loves it, loves it. I don't know what else to say about the avocado. I'm just very happy he's here. Do we ever see him again, or is this the one and only appearance? I think this is the one and only appearance. Right. I feel like we should keep an eye out. Like, I feel like the puppet will probably pop up again. I don't know that. It just feels like something that they would reuse. At least in a, like a, a Muppet food. Like a, Yeah, like in a salad. But <laughs> Don't say that. I just, I just love how random, like it just, yeah. no explanation ever. Yeah, at all. I don't know. None. I'll ask the avocado. It's just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, this is the only appearance listed on the wiki. And if you had bought the Statler Palisades action figure in 2003, you could have gotten the avocado as a pack-in. Statler Whoa. comes with an avocado. With the avocado, excuse me. Makes slightly more sense than the, the laptop that comes with the Lego Statler. <laughs> <With> the Legos. <laughs> Statler doesn't know how to use a laptop. He, he had a YouTube series. Of course he knows how to use a laptop. Okay. Lots of music this week, and I'm excited to talk about all of it, even the stuff that's repeated. That's how good it is. So at the very beginning of the episode, Pearl Bailey takes us to church. My life is a testimony. Yes, it is. Oh yes, my life is a testimony. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Someone needs to hear God's love is always near, and my life is a testimony. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I love it so much. It's so great. This is My Soul is a Witness, uh, which is not a traditional hymn. It's a variation on a traditional hymn. Some of the text appears in 
other hymns, but this specific version uh, was actually written by uh, Billy Preston and Joe Green for uh, Billy Preston's 1973 album, Everybody Likes Some Kind of Music. It's a deep thought. Recorded on uh, Future Home of the Muppet Studios A&M Records. They keep coming up a lot, which is delightful. I love how, you know, things echo through history like that. Yeah, if anybody's playing bingo, got one of those, you got good speed. Here's another one. A failed skiffle outfit. The Beatles were among the, the collaborators of Billy Preston, if his name is sounding familiar. He is, in fact, the only non-Beatle musician to be given a credit on a Beatles recording. And that was at their request. He's credited on uh, the song Get Back. It's actually credited as the Beatles with Billy Preston. He was a big session keyboardist in the 60s. And he worked with, like, everybody. He worked with Little Richard, Ray Charles, the Everly Brothers, Rolling Stones. Um, and then uh, in the 70s, he sort of branched off as a solo artist and had several hits, including Out of Space, Will It Go Around in Circles, Nothing from Nothing. Um, and also he co-wrote You Are So Beautiful. Hmm. Um, and uh, Joe Green, his, his co-writer, uh, is still with us. Billy Preston sadly died in 2006. And uh, Joe Green uh, was a, a popular session backup singer because he was a male soprano big in the 60s and 70s and was a major collaborator not only of Billy Preston's but also Quincy Jones and a, a few other people. Yeah, so so this is Pearl Bailey with backing choir in full like church choir robes of Muppets that includes a really odd assortment. Because <laughs> there's some pigs and whatnots, Zoot, Janice, Wayne, and Nigel. And Nigel is going for it. Oh, Nigel is living his best life. <laughs> Janice too. Janice's tambourine makes me very happy. It's so cute. Bold of them to start with a clapping number, since that's the least convincing thing the Muppets do. <laughs> There's a lot of clapping in this number. The tambourine works somehow, I guess, because it's easier to hit. And I feel like there is a way to have convincing clapping that they probably, if they needed to do this today, they could do it with technology, whether that's just with like, a magnet that turns on and off or something, but like here was literally just waving the rods and hoping that people weren't looking too closely. Honestly, I was having too much fun to worry about whether they were successfully clapping. It's a great freaking number. It really is. I do. I, I feel like my, my opinion has evolved from season one when I complained about the random assortment of Muppets that we got in numbers like this, because I, some of these whatnots are real fucking weird looking. <laughs> And I do not like them. I guess this is, I said I had no complaints. This is my one complaint about this episode. Uh, bring back hold Dork. You to that. Bring back Droop. <laughs> <laughs> I miss them. I want them back. Uh, I do feel like Droop is Jewish and would not be in a gospel number. But, you know, he's a consummate <laughs> performer and he would, do, he would do the work. So it's fine. And it's hard to believe that they would cast Zoot, who doesn't speak much. <laughs> right, right. I mean. And Zoot, no. also reportedly Jewish. Yeah, no, they're all professionals. They're all they're all they're saying. And actually, a thing I mean, to be serious, like a thing that I do love about this is that they, you know, they could have easily had the vocals on this done by an actual gospel choir. And I love that it's not that I love that it's our regular Muppet voices. It just and they I mean, they sound great. But like, yeah, you know, it just makes it muppety and it's not like pearl can't carry the number with her voice so why not it's so charming 
before we move on to the next thing, I have to shout out something random, which is that when Kermit introduces this, he mentions a chill running up his spine and it happens twice. And it's like a quick thing. And it looks like a golden snitch. And I think it's the combination of it looking feathery, but also there's like a, like a tinkly quality to it. The sound cue is really weird. Like it's like the, it's very, um, for children, like right, it's 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 very it's like very Sesame Streety. Yeah, yeah, a little magical moment when a chill runs up his spine. Yeah, and a little creepy. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, I do also want to shout out the set, which like for all the times I've watched this episode, I actually don't think I've ever really noticed, like the the stained glass columns, and the just like that opening light cue. Like it's really pretty in an episode that feels like it cost a lot of money in a way that we maybe have never seen on the show and uh, until now. Um, I was like, here's a thing you could have easily done on a bare stage, and you didn't. Yeah, I was thinking about that for the finale, but it hadn't occurred to me to think about that for, wow, they somebody spent a lot of time making those stained glass columns. Right. Well, that's what I mean, like, the, the finale, you kind of, they kind of needed it, so this could have been, like, where they cheaped out, and they, they didn't, and, and I... Yeah, no wonder they recycled the UK spot. Exactly. That's actually probably exactly why. <laughs> Good point. Not that I'm complaining. If there's one thing that I would complain about in this episode, and it's a minor quibble, it's the next bit, which is another one of those chickens sort of plucking out a song bits. hate it i (laughs) (laughs) I, better than the last one is it chickens being random chickens and playing a random song for a few seconds this one has two chickens of course it's better than the last one (laughs) it also like felt more recognizable as a song except it's not a song i know so i didn't recognize it yeah that's that's where i was i the thing is is i did sort of pick out for me and my gal but i didn't know this one either um, so I'm going to tell you about it. So uh, this is a song called The Bells of St. Mary's from 1917. Uh, music by A. Emmett Adams. Lyrics by Douglas Ferber. It was inspired by an actual church called St. Mary's Church in Southampton, England. And the song sort of re-entered the popular consciousness in 1945 because of a movie of the same name starring Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman. And what's sort of funny about it is it kind of became a Christmas song because of that movie, in spite of there being no lyrical content about Christmas in it, (laughs) Um, because it gets used in a Christmas pageant in the movie. And because of that, it's appeared on multiple Christmas albums, uh, including ones by Andy Williams, Aaron Neville, Sheryl Crow, like random people. I got no beefs with it. Random chickens. They can live their life. This is one of those numbers that I totally forgot was in the episode after I watched it. And I was looking at our outline to record our podcast. And I saw that Christy had all this information about this song that I absolutely had no memory of. And I was like, oh, was the gospel number a medley? Was there a second song in that that I didn't know? Because, like, you know, I don't know from church songs. Uh, but no, no, it was just that the chickens uh, once again did their thing. And it just poof in my brain. Short and sweet. I didn't get Last it. time, the bells knocked over the chickens. This time, the chickens knocked over the bells. 
Do what we will happen next be, time? I would say, are there more? I assume so. Next time it's war! <laughs> the bells turn into TNT. Our next number is one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> Let me jump in there with you in the good old summertime. All right. In the good old summertime. Strolling down that shady lane with, with my baby man. Listen, I'll take his hand, then he'll take mine. Good sign. Oh, that's a good, good sign. Yeah. Then naturally, I will be his tootsie wussy in the good old summertime. Go for yourself, man. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. I could go for like an entire album, a concert special. Like mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. series of just these two riffing. Mm-hmm. How high do we think they are? Yes. Fairly. I mean, that's sort of Pearl Bailey shtick. Like the way that she is in this number where she's sort of relaxed and tossing off ad libs. Like that's what she was famous for. So I don't know that she had to be high to do that because I think that's just her particular skill. Jerry Nelson is absolutely bombed out of his mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the intro that she gives to it, when she says, oh, if we go over, we might take over the whole thing. Did did that have just connotations that I'm not aware of when she says we could take over the whole thing? Is she just talking and letting words come out? I think she was sympathizing with him about not wanting to do the Camelot number. Yeah, I think so, too. Ah. Right. It's like, oh, we can just we'll take over the whole show if this is if if if, if this goes well. Okay. I'm overthinking it. I do really dislike the way that Floyd sings along with his bass part. Oh, it's so cute. He's just so happy to be rocking out. That's true. It's my only complaint about this number. Obviously, it's I've, I've now said that twice about the episode, so I guess I'm keep lying. <laughs> there you go. As Pearl Bailey points out. They're quibbles. Sorry, we should let you yeah, talk about the, the actual song, then we can talk about Floyd's outfit. So this is in the good old summertime, a song from 1902. I should have said also with the Bells of St. Mary, shout out to the public domain. This is a song with music by George Honeyboy Evans, who was a Welsh songwriter and minstrel performer who bore a disturbing resemblance to Martin Short. We'll have a picture in the show notes, only minstrels in the building. And lyrics by Ren Shields, who was a vaudevillian that I could not find a picture of, sadly. So who knows what he looked like or who he looked like. And here are some other song titles by these fellows, because we always enjoy these lightning rounds. Together and separately, uh, their songs included Come Take a Trip on My Airship, Standing on the Corner Didn't Mean No Harm, Look Out for the Hoodoo Doodoo Man, Papa Please Buy Me an Airship, Whoop Whoop Whoop, Make a Noise Like a Hoop and Roll Away, and The Hula Bula Glide. Two songs about airships? Two songs about airships, yeah. I almost threw in a third one just to be like, name the one that I made up. Um, <laughs> When we have our pop quiz episode, you can yeah. make up as many airship titles as you want. So funnily enough, just like the Bells of St. Mary's, this is another song that had a resurgence thanks to uh, a mid-century movie, uh, this time in 1949, an MGM musical movie, also called In the Good Old Summertime, uh, starring Judy Garland, which funnily enough was a musical adaptation of The Shop Around the Corner. If you're thinking, wait, what? Yes, uh, it's not the only one. She Loves Me is also a musical adaptation of The Shop Around the Corner. And yes, it's the same Shop Around the Corner that inspired the movie you've got. I know this song originally because when I was a very wee tot, I had a Disney, I think it was like one of those 
cassettes that came with a, a book uh, that was all Americana songs. Uh, and it had pictures of Mickey and the gang on the cover, but their voices weren't on the album. It was just some like random like studio chorus and maybe maybe some folk singer who I am not familiar with. So that album always confused me because I didn't understand why it was Disney but didn't sound like Disney. Uh, especially when the number Bicycle Built for Two came on, because that has the name Daisy in it, which is obviously also the name of Donald's girlfriend. But anyway, long story short, this song to me will forever be associated with that album. Uh, and that's weird. I know. Cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Feels on brand for us. I mean, my only association with this song is that uh, clip of the show. I've got a secret. <laughs> I don't remember if we've talked about it on the show before. I can't remember if we've talked about it either, but it's one of my favorite things in the history of television. So Meredith Wilson, the writer of The Music Man, used to regularly make appearances on 1950s game shows uh, and pull weird stunts that involved music. And uh, in this particular case, he managed to, with a New York phone book, cobble together a choir of people whose last names more or less spelled out an entire verse of this song. And like, not exactly, like... You know, the he didn't find someone named Summertime, but he found someone named Summer Stein. So it's like <laughs> stuff like that. But it's really weird and really funny, and we will have it in the show notes. I think it is something that would be to the liking of people who enjoy our show. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. We can talk about their outfits. Please do. As Pearl Bailey points out, Floyd looks great in these purple threads. He's got this groovy purple suit and a little sun hat. Yeah, I have He's questions about the hat. His life. I mean, not complaints, yeah. just questions. I, it did occur to me that that might not have been a hat made for Muppets or dolls. It might have been a person's type hat that just doesn't fit Floyd well, but it matches his suit. Does it? That was my question, really. <laughs> just seemed out of place. But he, he says that his main squeeze gave him the suit. Is that Janice? Presumably. I mean, presumably. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I just didn't think it was canon yet. I mean, how many squeezes do you think he has? Uh, do you really want me <laughs> to answer that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, af- after uh, the events of Mr. Baseman, it, it could have come from Scooter. Hey. Oh, my. At a couple points in this number, Pearl Bailey stands up and puts her hands on her hips and says the lyrics very defiantly. It's it's wonderful and it's adorable and it made me scream it's a pantsuit like i when she's sitting down it looks like a dress and just the fact that you discover that they're pants in the middle of the number is so striking i don't know why it had that effect on me i just love that she's wearing pants made me happy it's a great print it's this like flowered she looks very comfy and it's like 70s without being too 70s like i would i would wear a shirt in that print today i might wear the whole pantsuit well, yeah, I guess not so much in the Camelot number because, you know, of the nature of that costume. But she looks very comfortable at all times. She, we didn't talk about her caftan in the gospel number, and we should have. Yeah, also looks very comfortable. Just like all of it. All of it perfect. She's having a great time. You know who else is having a great time? Fozzie. Is he ever? Yeah, so our UK spot this week is a re- repeat of Hi Diddly D. Just for the halibut. Oh, just for the halibut. Looking at these 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 episodes did air three plus months apart, like three months and two weeks apart uh, in the UK. 
unlike in the US where they aired consecutively. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, not quite as weird (laughs) as it could have been. But Chris, do you have any new Pinocchio trivia for us for the repeat of the song? (laughs) No, but Adam and I did recently ride the Pinocchio ride at Disneyland. I was about to say, Chrissy and I have been to Disneyland together since we last recorded. Yeah, and it features in it a bit. We, we, we got to make a couple of just for the halibut jokes. So, uh, Oh, I love that. Yeah, the other riders were thrilled. I'm sure. You should have been carrying a fish and a hula hoop on the ride just so that people would ask you, what are you carrying them for? <laughs> I'm going to try the next time. Yeah. <laughs> carry a hula hoop so they can ask you what are you carrying a hula hoop for so you can say just for the halibut and then they'll throw you off (laughs) (laughs) i only do that on small world (laughs) (laughs) don't drink the water all right shall we talk about the grand medley let's do it oh let's Let's do it. So, so yeah, as we've discussed already, in lieu of Camelot, we get a medley of several famous show tunes from other shows. And we open with another uh, Learner and Low song, uh, specifically the Ascot Gavotte from My Fair Lady. Every Duke and Earl and here is here. Everyone who should be here is here. What a smashing, positively dashing spectacle we're here to see today. You know what I love about this is every other song that comes up in this is very sort of like greatest hits from their respective shows. (laughs) This one's a little more of a deep cut. So like, if you aren't really paying attention, you, you would be like, Oh yeah, this, this makes sense. Fancy people talking about fancy people and they're out. And yeah, it makes sense. And then like the more familiar, the songs become, the more it devolves into chaos. And learner and low didn't care about them using this one. Apparently. I suspect they probably wouldn't have cared about them using Camelot either, especially if someone paid them money. So yeah. So this is from my fair lady from 1956. And then, upon the entrance of Queen Guinevere, we get one of Pearl Bailey's signature numbers. Hello, fellas. Well, hello, fellas. It's so nice to be back home where I belong. You're looking swell, fellas. I can tell, fellas. You're still growing, you're still growing, you're still... Going strong, I feel this swing while the band plays one of my old favorite songs from way back then. Tell her, Dolly. So, my complaint here, and this is minor, but she refers to herself in the song as Pearly when she's supposed to be playing Guinevere. Couldn't she have just said Gwenny? Gwenny. Yeah. No. <laughs> i mean she could have but should she have i do kind of feel like she was like i'm doing my number yeah like as as game as she is and as like as good as she is at like taking all of this seriously and and acting and all of the things i also feel like at some point she was like i'm doing hello dolly i'm just doing my hello dolly right and she would do that on stage too like in fact at Hello Dolly, she was notorious for sometimes like doing what they called the third act. And after the show ended during the curtain call, doing like 
an extended sequence of her nightclub act. Oh God. To like keep people entertained, which the audience loved and everyone who worked on the show hated. Yeah. I still don't think anybody suggested Gwynny such that she would have had to oppose it. I think they just let her do it's pearly will never go away. Yeah. She's not super committed to the bit. I mean, certainly not as much as the Ascot Gavad crowd was. Or the trumpet player in this, who is both the trumpet player in the actual band and then the Muppet who is holding uh, one of those like bugles that doesn't have any curves or, or buttons on it, like you see a, a medieval herald play, but who is rocking out as though he is playing the trumpet solo. It's great. <laughs> and everybody, right, because she's, she's in the royal box with Rolf and Piggy and somebody else, Janice. Janice, and they're all like just having the time of their lives. Yeah, Piggy grooving along is, I mean, it's one of my favorite things about an episode where I have a lot of favorite things. But Piggy yeah. is just having such a great time. She's rocking out. I feel like it stands out because it's sort of rare to see Piggy like relegated to the background like that. And happy. Yeah. And happy, yeah. yeah. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. her solo is coming up. She's fine. And she looks great. I just think Piggy doesn't feel threatened by stars of a certain magnitude and Pearl was a star of a certain magnitude. Yeah. So uh, we get several songs in quick succession after this. <laughs> I got a horse right here, belongs to Guinevere, and I say this horse can do, can do, can do. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. So that's Fugue for Ten Horns from Guys and Dolls, songs by Frank Lesser, book co-written by Abe Burroughs. Go home, Abe Burroughs. <laughs> not this time. He can stay yeah, this time. That's not why this song is here. It's not because of the bet. It just made sense here. You don't know that. That's true. <laughs> And then the other song is Anything You Can Do for Me to Get Your Gun, written by Irving Berlin, which we've talked about before. Both of these songs were featured in a medley in the television special Julie on Sesame Street with Julie Andrews, with some of the same Muppet performers performing them. And that was interesting to hear them in this medley, too. And we will put that in the show notes. I just saw parts of that today when uh, it was shared in our Slack. And oh, my God, you guys. Oh, man. <laughs> it is wild. I love that special. I know that some Muppet fans feel that it is one of the lesser specials, but I have fond memories of many years ago before YouTube was YouTube, or maybe even before YouTube existed, going to what was then called the Museum of Television and Radio and watching the special in their library uh, and being totally charmed by it. Now you can just watch on YouTube. I didn't watch the whole thing, but the parts I watched were wild in the best way. Uh, Chrissy, do you want to talk about uh, Fugue for Ten Horns at all? The one thing that I, I will say about Fugue for Ten Horns is uh, in the Bob Hope episode, the horse was named Paul Revere, and it was because of this. Right. And it's the same horse that we see, right? Scooter dragging. Right. That's why that horse is named Paul Revere. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And Scooter drags him exactly the way he dragged Fozzie in the Dancing Bear number with that chain. I... As I said, like I, I have fond childhood memories of this episode, and so this song, you know, for the longest time was from the Muppet Show, and then I finally saw Guys and Dolls, and like didn't understand why they're like the the, the song is about horses, but it's about betting on horses, and like I was so confused for a minute 
when I was like, wait, there's no, where are the horses? How, how old were you? Uh, when was that Nathan Lane revival? Oh, so you were a teenager. Yeah. I mean, it that's was okay. Actually... It's not like you were 30 and you were like, where's the horsey? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, and even, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, where's the horsies? But I still like the. <laughs> I didn't understand that it wasn't a song about literal horses until I saw Guys and Dolls. And I feel like... I mean, it is a song about literal horses. They're just not on stage during the song. It's not called Guys and Dolls and Horses. Well, it's (laughs) true. Or in the case of this episode. Guys and Dolls and Horses and Bears and and Pigs and Chickens and things. Oh, that too. (laughs) Just like, like the image of Scooter and the horse was like so imprinted on me with these lyrics. That I was like, I don't understand. Why doesn't Walter Robbie have a horse? <laughs> Just doesn't make any sense. Or at least a cow. So our next piece of the medley is Piggy just g- going to Gonzo Land. <laughs> this is to me the funniest part. Oh, me too. It's my but... favorite. It's so <laughs> random and I love it. A boy like that who'd kill your brother. So get that boy and find another. One of your own kind. Stick to your own kind. And this, we should note, is where Pearl says this doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) I mean, arguably, Piggy shouldn't be doing that impression. But also, it's like five seconds. But. So good. Does Piggy think that Floyd and Gonzo are fucking? What? <laughs> you the original context of this through. song is is about yeah. telling someone they should leave their boyfriend because a boy like that would kill your brother. Piggy is saying to Floyd, a boy like that would kill your brother. Does she think that Floyd is fucking Gonzo and is trying to counsel him into leaving him? Is Gonzo the main squeeze? Is Gonzo the one who gave Floyd the outfit? Whoa. And did Gonzo murder Floyd's brother, you're saying? I think she's just worried about the joust going badly. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think Pearl Bailey thinks that Piggy thinks that Floyd and Gonzo are fucking. I think that's what elicits her response. No, Pearl Bailey can't follow any better than the rest of us. She's saying this makes no sense, and she's right. She's saying it makes no sense because she can't picture Floyd and Gonzo fucking because she's a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> She was happy to be on The Muppet Show until just now. (laughs) Now it's obscene. All I know is the last time I saw a live production of West Side Story, there was a a row of teenage girls sitting behind me. And around this point in the show, when like Tony crawls into Maria's room, one of the girls yelled out, don't do it, girl, he's trash! (laughs) (laughs) She's not wrong. She's not wrong. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what Piggy's saying here. Don't do it, Floyd. He's trash. (laughs) (laughs) He is wearing a suit of armor made out of trash. We end on a note that former Muppet Show guest star Ethel Merman would approve of. How do we look? You look swell. You look great. Gotta have the whole world on a plate. Starting here, starting now. Honey, everything's coming up. Roses and daffodils. Everything's coming up. Sunshine and sand. Everything's coming up. Roses for me. And for you. What a great episode. What a great episode. 
So yeah, that's everything that's coming up. Roses from Gypsy. Music by Julie Stein. Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim from 1959. And you know what's funny is that phrase has really sort of just entered the lexicon, but Sondheim invented it. Like it wasn't a thing before he wrote it. Well, that, there's um, a funny story about when they taught the song to Ethel Merman. She goes, Steve, one question. Everything's coming up roses. What? <laughs> <laughs> All I know is I like looked at a target receipt once and it says something like everything's coming up savings. And I was like, man, if Sondheim had only known, you know, 1959 when he was just trying to come up with the right phrase for a vaguely sociopathic character that it would impact the world. Two things I love about how they use this number is that uh, immediately preceding this is the actual joust and they do it to an instrumental version of this number, but it's really the beginning of the overture from Gypsy. It starts with that like fanfare that mm-hmm. is not part yes, of the number. Yes. And it, I, like, oh. I think like anyone who is vaguely familiar with Broadway watching this whole medley has moments when they're like, no, what? Huh? That was my big like, moment. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was like that, that to me was just hilarious. But then also they did the Muppet show thing where they went super literal, but not with the roses and the daffodils. Instead, when they sing Everything's Coming Up, Sunshine and Santa Claus, suddenly you notice that one of the whatnot Muppets is Santa Claus, uh, which if you notice in the clip, there was like a little bit of a laugh track there. That's why. Uh, but it was great. And it was just subtle enough that like you blink and you miss it. And you also wonder like, wait, has Santa Claus been part of this crowd, this entire sequence? And I'm only now noticing him. So I just love that. Was he? No, I mean, I don't every so. duke okay. is here. Yeah, yeah every saint. Because there's every, a... Yeah. There's a really weird looking whatnot with like a weird mouth that kept drawing my eye. And I'm like, wait, was that Santa Claus? I'm gonna have to go back and look. Probably no, they're, as they're saying, everything's coming up. Sunshine and Santa Claus. The, the Santa Claus. But now it like, comes up. Right. Yeah. Also among the crowd is my new favorite utility Muppet, the Piglet, which uh, you might remember we met him as part of the Lullaby of Broadway chorus, although he seems like he's aged up a little bit for this. Well, he was being held in that, and now he's just on his own. Right. He was like a papoose in, yeah. in the other one, and now he's part uh, of the company. Uh, hanging out. maybe an adolescent. <laughs> also, we talked about the set and like the, the money spent. Um, I'm pretty sure they were using chroma key in this to give it more depth, uh, and the piglet is in like the – there's like a front row – in front of the field and then there's the jousting field and the boxes. And I think that that front row is, is actually green screened on to the rest of it, but really nicely. And it just helps to make it all look bigger. Um, I like how they're starting to play with that stuff. Yeah. It was an elaborate enough set that I was surprised and impressed. Yeah. It makes it look bigger. And also I suppose it allows them to film it in two different chunks with the same number of puppeteers, which also mm-hmm. helps. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? On top of all that, we've got some show business. Over in Muppet Labs, Bunsen has the answer to all of your prayers. Edible paper clips. Now, the honor of tasting this first batch of delicious paper clips goes, of course, to my helpful and eager assistant, Beaker. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, Beaker, what is the matter? Oh, that's very naughty, Beaker. Now you eat these clips this minute. <laughs> so Bunsen insists that these paper clips are nutritional and nickel-plated and totally harmless. And then it's not that Beaker unravels from the inside, which is what I would expect would happen if 
a Muppet eats a giant jar of paper clips, but instead just his nose falls off. <laughs> That's the effect they have. Much like the avocado, I appreciate that this is just presented as a completely normal thing that anybody would want. Why wouldn't you want an edible paperclip? Yeah, this is a scientific advancement. Well, think about it. How often when you have a paperclip, like if you receive papers that have been clipped together, and then you're done with the papers, and then you're stuck with this paperclip, you don't know what to do with it. How helpful it would be if you could just eat it. I think that'd be very helpful. Or you could put it in a container on your desk for the next time you need a paperclip. Yeah, but happen. then you sometimes end up with just, you know, a plethora of paperclips and you only need so many. You don't need a plethora of paperclips. How many paperclips do you need? You know, it's all it's all electronic now, but working in an office where we used to receive scripts by the hundreds, ah. we had like literal buckets of binder clips because the scripts would be discarded and the binder clips were like, well, we should we should reuse these, but what what did we need them for? So right. imagine uh, if those were made out of Altoid. Yeah, no, David makes a point. Binder clips have endless uses. Do you know how many they things do. in my apartment are being held together by binder clips right now? That sounds like a you problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a me solution. I only have it's so many up bags my of chips in my life. <laughs> oh well, yeah, they they seal bags of chips. They're holding up the curtains. There are other things that. are not falling apart because of binder clips buckets michael buckets thanks binder clips i gotta say the hit rate of all of bunsen's dry weird comments like i i hesitate to call them jokes i mean they are jokes but you know what i mean is higher than usual this week like the answer to all your prayers kills me every time he's deadly serious deadly serious (laughs) it's beautiful and he opens yeah. the scene muttering to himself. Tinker, tinker. Yeah, fiddle, fiddle, fiddle tinker, tinker. tinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like rabbit saying rabbit and oysters saying pearl. Right. Well, now that Beaker's lost his nose, friends, we have to use one of my favorite lines of all time. Right after I don't know, I'll ask the avocado. Poor fellow lost his nose. Mm, how will he smell without it? Same as always. Terrible. <laughs> what a great episode there's a Muppet news flash there was an explosion at the hat factory then guess what hats fall on the newsman (laughs) it's a fine use of seven seconds meanwhile on pigs in space uh, today on the swine trek the ship and its crew are all turning edible there's no time for that now we must either find out our position or we will perish (laughs) Oh, which is it to be, Link? Prunes. Prunes? Hmm. Prunes was not a choice. This is a pencil-shaped prune. Wait, I see by the readout here that we are passing through a field of deadly snack-a-waves. Snack-a-waves? Yeah, yeah. Prunes was not a choice. Use that in an email today. Anyway, everything's turning into food. Miss Piggy turns into a chocolate cake. Link turns into a cauliflower. Uh, Dr. Strangepork's readout from the machine is now a frozen chicken dinner for two. We don't find out how they survive on a spaceship that has turned into food. The crew have started to eat the ship. I find that a bit hard to swallow. The, The crew is eating the ship. Are you going bananas? No. 
scallions. I love that his <laughs> Dr. Strange Pork's voice and the scallion's voice are just, they've always been the same. I never noticed before. <laughs> That's a good point. Piggy does this thing where, I, I don't know if because she doesn't know she's turning to cake. She, she tosses her hair, which is no yes. longer there. It's very funny. <laughs> she keeps doing it. And she does it when her hair is tied back in that net for the finale when she's dressed in the... I, I oh, don't yeah. know what to call her costume, but she still does the hair toss because that's just what Piggy does. Yeah, she's wearing a snood. <laughs> Shout out to snoods. <laughs> just, I just love excuses to use to the word snood. snood. They don't come up very often. I just, because I'm me, I appreciate that there seems to be an internal logic to to this. And I, I've decided that the, the inanimate objects on the ship don't change shape, but but they but they do acquire flavor. Right, like he just he eats the readout, like the printer paper, but it tastes like the thing. But the 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 pigs' heads turn into food, and I like that. And I don't. I think it's actually just a practical issue or a joke issue. But I decided to not be pedantic about it and make an excuse for it. Uh-huh. The funniest part is when they're eating the receipt or the printout, whatever it is, and he says, "It's chicken dinner for two. The for two part kills me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How could you tell by tasting it? By the length of the printout. Sure, sure. It's a CVS receipt. Yeah, it now says Why? I mean, and pigs are already delicious, so it seems redundant, but, you know. But imagine if they tasted like chocolate cake. I can't imagine that. I don't know what pigs taste like. I'm sure they're great. Fair. At the top of the sketch, the camera spends a really long time in this close-up on Link's hand while he is attempting to chart out where they are. (laughs) And... I, I get the feeling Jim Henson was very proud of himself for being able to draw this as a puppet while looking down at a monitor. If the timeless endlessness of eternal space is about that big, and then our spaceship is down here, possibly, or... Uh, excuse me, Link, what, what's in the corner there? Uh, well, uh, that's a ducky. Also, just very funny. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, like he's drawing left-handed, and and can he even see it? I guess he can see it on the monitor. Yeah, I ducky. mean, they didn't need to spend that much time on it, but the fact that it concludes with "that's a ducky" <laughs> makes it worthwhile. Link also feels like, I mean, like not quite like Janice, who I feel sort of emerged fully formed in this episode in a way that, like, we've just never really seen her as a as a character outside of its hospital before. But like, Link's evolution is is something I'm finding delightful. He knows how to draw a ducky too. Ish. It's a pretty convincing ducky, considering it was drawn by a puppet. Fair. At the dance, some of the dancers are already in their knights and medieval costumes. So we've got knights in armor stepping on their dates. Uh, We've got a guy supporting his wife and child, literally. And there's an exceedingly clever pig. Are you a real professor? Of course. I hold the chair of philosophy. Oh, where's that? Right here. (laughs) (laughs) He's holding a chair, in case anybody was confused. You know, I I get that there's no official voice for Argo Mildred, but... It's exceptionally weird for Louise Gold's voice to come out of her. (laughs) I don't know. Because she's British? Because she's actually a woman? Because she's actually a woman. (laughs) She's actually a woman, I think, is part of it. I just noticed that the background dancers in this, like the ones who don't get their moment to give a joke, are getting weirder and weirder. Like the very first couple you see 
there's a pink lady with like a horn coming out of her nose. And later on, there's someone wearing just like a very large tutu who doesn't ever get a line. It's just, I mean, like, that's who go comes on to with it. your bad self, Muppet Workshop, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's who's in the Muppet Ballroom. Makes sense to me. Are they the whatnots from the gospel number? I don't think so. Oh, terrific, terrific, wonderful. Uh, say, is your friend the avocado here some kind of professional critic? Nah, he's just unemployed. You should go to work. Try to make something of yourself. Ooh, like what? Guacamole. <laughs> Ooh, like what? I love the avocado. <laughs> oh, I just realized what the accent is. What is he's it? from California. Right. It's a valley girl. Yeah. Now it's even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> and he loves it, loves it, loves it. Do we think that they started with this joke and worked backwards and that's why they had the avocado? I do I think, think that. I think somebody just built an avocado and it was the cutest damn thing anybody had ever seen. And then they wrote a guacamole joke. Yeah, I'm, I'm on team puppet first on this. Entirely possible. We have once again reached the end, if not of our episode, at least of our outline. So <laughs> does anyone have final thoughts they'd like to share? I don't know. Let's ask the avocado. I didn't like it. What do you avocado think? It's the pits, sir. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Tune in next week to hear our impressions of the Gene Stapleton episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Loved it, loved it, loved it. It's got so much to love. It's got one of my... No, I'm going to say it one more time because I keep saying one of. No, the avocado is my fucking favorite. (laughs) (laughs) There's your bonus clip. Uh, I thought we had it in the MacArthur Park stuff and nope, nope, it's that. Yep. (laughs) Just fucking love the avocado, you guys. (sighs) 